It is always such a joy to stand before you on a Sunday morning to minister the Word of God to you. And I confess I always do so with a sense of divine urgency to be able to preach the gospel and apply it to your life, to be able to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ in these days of such mounting apostasy and wickedness these last days before our Lord returns. And I believe that could be very soon. So it is my desire once again to see you understand more of who God is and more of his precious word, more of who Christ is and give him glory. So therefore, we come afresh this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you will take your Bibles and turn there. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through this epistle verse by verse. This is now the third and final exposition that I would like to give to you out of this text under the heading, The Dangerous Deception of Self-Assurance. And I have to say that whenever we stand under the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, we're always exposed for who we really are, are we not? We always see ourselves in ways sometimes we don't like to see. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The text goes on to say that it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with him with whom we have to do. And so for believers, whenever we sit under the teaching of the word, the word can do two things. It can expose the good that Christ has accomplished in and through us, but it can also expose the bad, those things that we need to deal with, many times things that the world applauds but God despises. And because we tend to fear man more than we fear God, it's very easy for us to be conformed to this world, to allow the world to make us like it. And therefore, sometimes we resent the clear teaching and preaching of the word. I'm sure if you're honest, there are sometimes you will say, I can't believe he would say that. And I know from past experience, there are times when some of you have been exceedingly upset with me because you're certain that I have singled you out. By the way, it's for this reason that Bible preaching and teaching churches are so poorly attended. Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3.20. He goes on to say, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Folks, God's word will either harden or soften a heart. And I hope you're here today to allow it to soften your heart. And I'm, I'm deeply humbled by all of you that will come and will hear the word of the living God and to allow, allow the penetrating light of that word to pierce your very heart, to expose as it does with me 
those things that are dishonoring to the Lord, but also bring encouragement because of his goodness and his grace. Aren't you thankful for the encouragement? Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? So, so when you hear these things, and you're going to hear some today, I'm sure the lash is going to fall on all of our back today from this text. But just know that there is grace. This is a, a loving father that's giving us his word. We can rejoice knowing that he who began a good work in us is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And therefore, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as we come back to this text, let's remember the broader context. Just a real quick review. Paul has been discussing in chapters 8, 9, and 10 this issue of Christian liberty. And in chapters 8 and 9, he's talked about the dangers of abusing that liberty and how that might affect others. And in chapter 10, he's dealing with how it might affect you and me as believers. And he's underscoring once again the need for self-discipline and self-denial, lest we disqualify ourselves from usefulness and service to Christ like the Israelites did. And two million of them died in the wilderness. We've been looking at this under three headings, the resources of the redeemed, the responsibility of the redeemed, and finally, the reassurance of the redeemed. And in the last couple of weeks, we've examined how Israel's arrogance and false security cost them dearly. Under the resources of the redeemed, remember in the first four verses, The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives four very profound illustrations of God's blessings upon Israel. All of the the resources that he gave them so that they could be a witness nation. Those four blessings included his presence in a pillar of cloud, his deliverance in the parting of the sea, his guidance through the leadership of Moses, his sustenance in the provision of food and water. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. So despite these astounding privileges, these blessings that God had lavished upon them, all of these resources so they could be his witness nation to his glory. Despite all of that, they squandered it all by succumbing to an inflated opinion of their own spirituality. They ignored their need for self-denial and self-discipline. So they misused their freedom. They fell into sin and they disqualified themselves from service to God and died in the wilderness. And Paul's point here to the Corinthians and to the saints here at Calvary Bible Church And all of the redeemed down through the ages learn from their mistakes. The key of this whole passage is in verse 12. Let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Folks, to be sure, as we have mentioned before, we have been given magnificent resources in Christ right here in this church. And it's very easy for us to become smug in our spirituality and think that somehow we are beyond the danger of falling into temptation and sin. 
And therefore, we can become careless about our freedoms in Christ. So, as a result, it's easy for us to ignore the warnings. Some of you come here every Sunday, and as soon as I begin to speak, you tune me out. You're ignoring the warnings that God has given you. It's easy to ignore the dangers, to trivialize sin, and to ignore the need to separate ourselves from the world. And so we scoff at those ideas, and then imperceptibly, we succumb to temptations and we disqualify ourselves from effective service to Christ. That's the danger. And then secondly, we looked at the responsibilities of the redeemed in verses 5 through 10. And that's where we will be some here this morning. In verse 6, notice he says, Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And he gave us four categories that were characteristic of the Israelites, categories that proved how they disqualified themselves as that witness late nation. Remember, number one, they were idolatrous. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's the illustration of the golden calf that we studied. They called that golden calf Yahweh. And like so many people today, they worshiped the right God in the wrong way. They reduced the one true God to a God of their own making, which naturally led to religious syncretism. They mixed in some of the orgiastic, some of the depraved pagan worship, like they were accustomed to in Egypt and like they were seeing all around them in the pagan religions of Canaan, the Baal worship. And the danger there that we must remember is that whenever we distort or we trivialize the one true God who has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself to us, whenever we desire anything more than him, whenever we recreate him to our own liking, we commit the sin of idolatry. And that is rampant in our culture today, especially in evangelicalism. And for this reason, many believers are disqualified from serving Christ, and they may not even realize it. Secondly, they were also immoral, not only idolatrous, but they were immoral. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. What a startling example of overconfidence that they had. God had just given them dramatic victories over Sihon and Og in the Transjordan. And despite all of that, the Israelites still embraced the culture of the Moabites, and they were seduced into the Baal of Peor worship of the Moabites. And he was worshipped by the prostitution of virgins. And so this, again, is a stark reminder to the Corinthians and to the saints at Calvary Bible Church, be careful you are so prone to overconfidence. It's so easy to think that you are impervious to immorality. And, of course, immorality dominated the culture in Corinth. And so they thought, oh, I can attend those religious feasts that also include some orgies over there on the side. It's not going to bother me. I, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual enough to not let that really impact me. 
I can still be a part of the trade guild festivities and just ignore the prostitution that's going on all around me. And, and, you know, if I do slip, that's okay, because this is an age of grace and God will forgive it all. This is the kind of thinking that brought judgment upon the Israelites and God killed 23,000 of them in one day. By the way, as a footnote, you young people, if you wonder what God thinks about you messing around in the backseat of a car, read this text. You men and you women that flirt with pornography, you wonder what God thinks about that? Read this text. You people who wonder what God thinks about casually hooking up or living with someone else apart from the bounds of marriage, read this text. Let the word of God speak to your heart, dear friends. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the third area of sin that rendered the Israelites disqualified from being a witness nation and enjoying the blessings of the promised land is that they tested God. And that's where we will begin today. Notice verse 9. Paul says, nor let us try the Lord. Try could be translated test or tempt the Lord, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. The idea here is to test the Lord means to essentially try him, determine the limit he will endure before saying enough is enough, before he punishes those who try his patience. It reminds me of the defiant child. You've all seen them, especially at Walmart. The child is completely undisciplined. He or she is carrying on, screaming, grabbing at things, and mom's counted to 10 about 47 times. But finally, the mom has had enough, and the voice will raise, and the child will get it. That's the boundary. And usually what happens is they keep pushing against the boundary, so the next time... They'll have to count to 10, 48 times. You get the idea. In Numbers 21, we read about that story that Paul is alluding to. The Canaanite king of Arad attacked the Israelites. He captured some of them. And the text said, so Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them in their, city, their, their cities. But what's fascinating, as they travel on, the text says the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So despite the miraculous ways God had proved himself powerful on their behalf, despite all of the provision that he had given them for 40 years, they pushed him for more. It was never enough. They described their food supply as miserable. It could be translated worthless or contemptible. Folks, this kind of gratitude betrays a rebellious heart, a heart that demands more than what God has graciously provided. Theirs was a heart filled with discontent, always pushing God to give more and to tolerate more. And rather than celebrating their freedom and humbly committing themselves to to honoring God for his undeserved goodness, they usurped his throne 
And they demanded that somehow he honor them with more savory provisions. We see a lot of that today where the attitude is that God somehow exists for our happiness rather than we exist for his glory. So they tried God's patience. They kept pushing him to the limits of his his forbearance, not only in the realm of wanting more savory food. They also demanded that God provide a lifestyle suited to their liking to include the immoral freedoms of the culture around them. Remember, in verse 6, they craved evil things. That's at the source of all of this. And friends, one of the most certain proofs of a person that craves evil things is a discontented heart. Someone that's complaining against what God has provided. Always demanding more freedom, more autonomy, and constantly testing the limits of his mercy. You know, it's like the rebellious teenager who's always complaining about the unfair rules in the parent's house. I never did that. Maybe you did. But I've seen that before, right? We know what that is. Always, as we say, pushing the envelope, testing the limits to see what we can get away with. And before you know it, nothing is good. I don't like this house. I'm sour on the world. The food stinks. The house is crummy that I live in. This car that I have to drive is is embarrassing. And my parents are jerks. You know, that's how it works, right? We begin to just complain against everything. And this is what happened with the privileged yet presumptuous Israelites. And it can happen to us. And as a result, God punished them in their rebellion. And it says in verse 6 of that text in Numbers, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. As I was thinking about this and allowing this light to shine on my life, I couldn't help but think of a dog that I once had, and some of you may remember my dear dog, Otis. He was a magnificent boxer, male boxer. In fact, you could see his bones, and yet you could his neck was 24 inches around. Magnificent dog. And he was a master at testing my patience. And because he had absolutely no social graces, he was very seldom allowed in our home. But when the weather would get bad, we would allow him to come in and had a very comfortable palate for him. But, you know, that was never quite good enough. He always wanted to roam the house and get into everything. But he was always obedient as long as he could see my eyes. As long as we had eye contact, he was a good dog. But let me walk out of the room in just a matter of time. He's up roaming around, getting into things. And he would lay on his pallet and I would be reading a book or watching television or something. And I would watch him out of the corner of, of my eye. And wherever the edge of the pallet was, he would watch me and he would start putting his paw right over the edge. And then a little bit later, you'd see him moving a little bit more. And if I didn't do what I would typically do, he would eventually get up. And usually after I let him go so far, I'd go, yeah, no. He'd put it right back. You see, there was no thought in Otis's mind that, wow, isn't it wonderful that I have this warm palate that has been given to me? 
I just want to be thankful for this. I will gladly honor my master here. I will remain on this pallet. I will not demand another thing. No, he wasn't that way. And aren't we the same way? How easy it is, dear friends, for us to presume upon God's grace as if there is no limit to his patience and to live on the very edge of our liberty to see how much he will tolerate, to see how much we can get away with. Beloved, whenever we try God's patience, whenever we push him for more, whenever we ask that he allow us to do more, we betray a rebellious heart. And that's what was going on with the Corinthians. And it's true for all of us. They thought they were immune to spiritual danger. And they thought they were too privileged to be punished. And while the judgment wasn't poisonous snakes, it was equally severe even for the Corinthians as it is to this day. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, we read, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Oh, dear Christian, don't test God. Don't try his patience. Rejoice in the freedom that he has given you. Live within that. Otherwise, you will be disqualified from effective service to Christ. And you will place yourself under the cloud of divine chastening. And, And what's really sad is when this happens, many times we're so blind, we can't even see it until we eventually reap the bitter fruit that we have sown. Again, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. So the Israelites craved idolatry and immorality. They tried God's patience. And then number four, they grumbled against God's provisions. Verse 10, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Destroyer here is a reference to an angel that that God used and continues to use, for that matter, uh, for judgment. You remember that that was the angel that, that killed the firstborn in Egypt. It was also the angel that killed the, the 70,000 uh, uh, because of David's census. Remember in Second uh, Samuel 24 is the one that killed the 185,000 Assyrians in Second Chronicles 32 when Hezekiah cried out for help and, and so forth. Now... It's interesting, the word that is used here. He says, nor grumble. It could be translated murmur. Um, and and it's, a, it's a word that means to, to give audible expression to unwarranted dissatisfaction. And it's an onomatopoeic word, a, a big word that means... Uh, it's a word that phonetically imitates or, or sounds like what it's describing. We've got a lot of those words like meow or oink or clank. I mean, it sounds like what we're describing. And here in Greek, it's gongzete, 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 complaining. And by the way, it carries the idea of doing it behind your hand. It's that type of thing. You get the idea. Now, there are two occasions where this kind of grumbling was recorded. One in Numbers chapter 14 and one in Numbers 16. And I believe here Paul is referring to the one that happened in Numbers 16 where the people rebelled against God's chosen representatives. 
Moses and even Aaron, his brother and high priest. Now, remember, in this story, just so that you you understand the context, Moses alone was authorized to stand before Israel, quote, instead of God, Exodus 4.16. And Moses possessed all of the authority, the authority and the power of the of the true God himself. Exodus 7, 1. See, said Jehovah, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. So all of the new revelations that came from God, all of the supernatural signs to be performed, all of the divine laws to be given, all of the decisions that would be made between disputing parties and and judgments to be pronounced. All of those things came from Moses, who had been chosen to be the mediatorial ruler of God's theocratic kingdom on earth. But a Levite by the name of Korah, who was allied with some other Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, as well as other leaders of Israel, became jealous of Moses and Aaron. Now, we know that the mother of jealousy is pride, and it always produces a critical, rebellious spirit that complains about everything, and it ends up causing strife. It caused strife in the camp of the Israelites. It causes strife in a marriage, in a community, in a church in a government, and we see this all the time. So they challenged Moses and Aaron's authority to represent God before the people. They even challenged Aaron's priesthood and wanted to be priests themselves. They even accused Moses of self-promotion. They unfairly criticized his leadership. So Moses calls upon the Lord to prove to all of Israel whom he had appointed and thus vindicate himself and Aaron. And you will recall in that story how Korah and Dathan and Abiram, along with their entire family, the text says their wives, their sons, even their little ones, came and they had to stand in front of the doorway of their tents. Beginning in verse 28 of Numbers 16, we read this. Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households. And all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. And what's fascinating in that story, if that wasn't enough, many of the Israelites were still unsubmissive. And they complained that Moses and Aaron had killed the people of the Lord. This kindled God's wrath. And we read in the text that he 
then killed 14,700 more of them. And he would have killed more of them had not Moses and Aaron interceded on their behalf by making atonement for their sin. Which, by the way, is a dramatic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man. Now, the analogy is very clear. Do not allow jealousy to fill your heart. And in an attitude of spiritual overconfidence, presume upon the patience of God. Do not question God's plan or his purposes for your life. Don't murmur against God and in doing so accuse him of being unfair. And also don't unfairly criticize and slander those whom God has placed in authority over you. Some of the Corinthians were doing this. This type of thing was gaining momentum in Corinth. Some of them, as you may recall, were complaining against Paul and challenging his apostolic authority. They were grumbling against the word that he was teaching, that God had revealed. And so, in essence, they were saying, God cannot be trusted. God is too restrictive. He is stingy with his goodness. We want to enjoy more of the old life. We want to enjoy more of the culture and embrace more of these things. Who puts you in charge anyway? You see, Paul knew that this kind of wickedness is devastating to a church as it was to the camp of the Israelites. Because what can happen, like Korah, a dissatisfied grumbler will then enlist others to join with him in his unwarranted dissatisfaction and rebellion. And like Korah, his whining sycophants will cause great trouble and God will deal harshly with them. Sadly, the sin of grumbling against God is like poison ivy. Have you ever had poison ivy? Oh, I've had it. It is terrible stuff. The rough thing about it is the more you itch it, the more it spreads and the worse it gets. It spreads to every area of your life. That's what grumbling does. You grumble about this, and before you know it, you don't like your wife, you don't like your husband, you don't like your parents, you don't like your job, your school, your house, your community, your friends, and on and on it go. Why doesn't God give me more money? Why doesn't God do things different for my life? Why aren't there changes here that I need to have happen in my life and so forth? And then those kind of people become very hard to be around. It reminds me of an old saying that my grandparents used to say that when you're grumbling, you're like an old sore-tailed cat. Have you ever heard that phrase, a sore-tailed cat? Okay, well, you have now. I don't know what a sore-tailed cat is, but I can imagine what it would be like, all right? And so I get the picture, always whining about something, never satisfied with what God has given, never really thankful for what God has given. And therefore, we become resistant to his word and his will. And that's the opposite of Paul's attitude when he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So there we have four categories of sin that characterize the Israelites, as well as each of us, that rendered them disqualified 
from being God's witness nation and enjoying the blessings of the promised land. These are what I call the responsibilities of the redeemed. We must therefore learn to flee from idolatry, flee from immorality, and never try the Lord our God and never grumble against him. What a powerful warning to the Corinthians and to all of us. Because instead of celebrating their deliverance from sin, instead of all of that, they were disgruntled. And they, and they secretly craved the pagan ceremonies and, and all of the stuff that, were a part, that was a part of their culture. And this caused them to see their new faith as too restrictive. An attitude that, that tries the Lord our God. So folks, I would challenge you. Guard yourself against that. So we've seen the resources of the redeemed, the responsibilities of the redeemed, and finally, the reassurance of the redeemed in verses 11 through 13. Notice what he says in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's a fascinating phrase there at the end. He's saying that in, in essence, all of the events in Scripture from the preceding eons of time or ages of time or dispensations of time, all of them have been given to us for our instruction. They have been written down. And here we are living in the last era of human history, just prior to the Messiah's return. We live in this age and what fools we would be to ignore the history of what all of the previous ages reveal and offer to us. And how stupid we would be to allow the warnings of the past to go unheeded. And practically speaking, dear friends, it is so easy for us to become overconfident in our spirituality rather than being suspicious of it. How easy it is to become self-absorbed and self-assured due to our spiritual privileges, all of the blessings that God has given us. And then we, we subtly, many times imperceptibly, unwittingly abuse the freedoms that we have in Christ. We become worldly idolaters. We flirt with immorality rather than flee from it. We presume upon God's patience. We complain about his plan and purpose for our lives. So in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. When he says, let him who thinks he stands, he's in essence saying, let let the person who thinks he is safe in his Christian life. Let the person who thinks he is invincible or invulnerable to spiritual danger and disaster. Take heed that you do not fall. And this is the dangerous deception of self-assurance, of depending upon our own strength, of being overconfident, letting our guard down, neglecting the need to be watchful. John MacArthur said this, quote, When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest, our doctrine the soundest, and our morals the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent on the Lord. Charles Hodge also put it this way, we cannot preserve in holiness without, I'm sorry, we cannot persevere in holiness without continual watchfulness and effort. 
false security as to our power to resist temptation rests on an overweening self-confidence in our own strength. None are so liable to fall as those who, thinking themselves strong, heedlessly run into temptation. Now, what does falling look like? I thought I would dwell on this for a moment. Let me hit the highlights. Because of sin, we begin to grieve the Holy Spirit in our life. We quench the Spirit in our life. And one of the first things that will happen is we will lose our appetite for the Word of God. And our appetite for the things of the world will replace it. We will find teachers that will tell us what we want to hear and make us feel good about the ways we abuse our liberty in Christ. And sadly, because the word is not really all that powerful, we're not involved with it. We don't read it anymore. In fact, many Christians, maybe some of you, will never even open their Bible through the week. They'll sit here for an hour, but they'll never open their Bible all week long. But they will spend hours on social media and watching television. Folks, by the way, if that is you, then you've already fallen at some level. We will play on the very edge of the viper's pit rather than seeing how far we can get from it and keeping an eye on it. We will boast more of grace than we will sorrow over our sin. Personal piety will be considered an affront to grace and worldliness will be considered a celebration of it. By the way, why do you think seeker-sensitive churches are so popular? It's because people are seeking a, a God of their own making and a life of their own liking. So little by little, we begin to think and act and talk and even look like those who have no fear of God, no love for Christ and we become increasingly careless when it comes to temptation. We become complacent in our sin. And without realizing it, we gradually leave our first love for Christ. And our soul then begins to go in silent and secret search of other lovers. And we have no real joy or power in our life. No habit of prayer. No desire to be in fellowship with the lover of our soul. No private worship, no holy boldness in our proclamation, no desire to say, as the psalmist did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Along with this, there will be no burden for the lost or passion for personal holiness to somehow put the glory of God on display in our life. And because our Christian testimony is really a sham, people will roll their eyes when we speak of spiritual things or we post some verse on Facebook. No one will want to really be like us. Our marriage, our family will begin to suffer and those who really love Christ won't even want to spend much time around us. Little by little, as I see people in this category, they, they struggle more and more with loneliness and depression, and temptation, even despair. 
because fellowship has been broken. Now, we may still have a visible ministry in church. You may still be involved in missionary work or whatever, but you'll be operating in the flesh and not the spirit because you have been disqualified. And sadly, many pulpits today are filled with men and even women who are disqualified. They are not really being effective in service to Christ or useful for Christ. Again, they're operating in the flesh, not the spirit. All because we fail to do what Paul said earlier, and that is to exercise self-control in all things. Remember in chapter 9? That's the context of all of this. We fail to run in such a way as not without aim. We fail to box in such a way as not beating the air. We fail to discipline our body and make it our slave so that after we have preached to others, we ourselves will not be disqualified. But oh, dear friends, please hear this. If this is describing you, may I encourage you, there is forgiveness in Christ. There is grace. There is reconciliation. Think about it. He has redeemed us that he might inhabit us so that he can conform us into the likeness of Christ. He came to give us life. Abundant life. He came to give us joy and not sorrow. He came to give us abundant grace. He came that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But folks, none of that will ever happen unless we walk by the Spirit. Notice the reassurance that he gives us here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, this is part and parcel of being a human. If I can put it to you this way, whatever trial you are facing today, know full well that millions of others have faced the same trial. The dynamics are going to be the same, even though the circumstances may be a little different. We must also remember that God is never the author of temptation. In James 1.13, we read, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But we also know that God will allow temptation to enter into our life to put our faith and our obedience on display. And therefore, temptation can either be a test from God to prove our righteousness or a seduction from Satan to induce us to sin. And it all depends upon how we respond to it. The poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox captures this perfectly in a phrase in her, one of her poems, she said this, One ship sails east and another west by the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Oh, child of God, life is all about choices, isn't it? You young people hear this. It's all about choices. And temptations and trials are all around us. It's the very air that we breathe. The question is, how will we respond to them? Will we exercise self-denial and self-discipline? Because the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax, right? The question is, will our hearts be as clay or as wax? Will the heat of trials harden our hearts or soften them? 
He goes on again. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is, is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Isn't that a magnificent verse? What a promise. My, how many times have I read that passage in the midst of great despair? Haven't you? But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. By the way, just technically the way, whenever you have a definite article with a singular noun grammatically in the Greek, it's, it means that this is the only way. And the only way is through the trial. He's not going to say, ah, no, I'm not, yeah, not going to let you go to that. I'll let you avoid that. No, I'll let you go over it or under it or around. No, you're going to have to go through it. That's the point here. And what a powerful demonstration of God's faithfulness and his love to us. You see, folks, this means that we can never say, but I had no choice. But I had no resources to resist. But I had no power to endure. I had no way through. Oh, yes, you did. God always provides that. God is always faithful to provide all we need to honor him, come what may. And by the way, it's in the context of this kind of obedience that we experience real joy, real blessing, and real freedom in Christ. Now, practically, in closing here this morning, I thought I would address what I know some will ask, and that is what... What's the most important thing that we can do to avoid being disqualified? If I can just put it in two words, actually it's three words, but two words, watch and pray. All right, let me close with this thought here this morning. You know, Jesus gave this very command to his disciples. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the text says that he was deeply grieved to the point of death. And so Jesus stationed Peter, James, and John in a particular place. And what did he ask them to do? To watch and to pray. Matthew 26. He then went on beyond them to a place of solitude. The text says that, that he fell on his face and prayed that the Father would spare him from drinking the bitter cup of divine wrath. And three times he returned to his disciples only to find them asleep, indifferent to his agony, unconcerned about their own vulnerability to temptation. Therefore, it's interesting what Jesus warned them. Matthew twenty six forty one: keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, keep alert. Stand guard over the frailties of your flesh, especially in light of the impending difficulties that you are going to experience with the barrage of satanic temptations that you will experience when I'm gone that will cause you to surrender to fear and, and, and to spiritual compromise. Keep watching and keep praying. He's saying, don't be overconfident in your own strength. Don't let down your guard. Be forever suspect of your perceived spiritual prowess. Lest you suffer a surprising defeat. Remain alert and, and with the spiritual attacks from without and from within. 
And pray that the Father will lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. And beloved, may I say that every season in life brings with it unique opportunities to sin, right? Unique temptations requiring us to remain committed to watch and pray. Whether it's, it's sickness and disease, prosperity, poverty, uncertainty, loneliness, confusion, grief, fear, whatever it is. And scripture gives us many illustrations of those who fail to watch and pray in some vulnerable season of life. And then it describes the tragedy that ensued. For example, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and rebelled against God during a season of Edenic paradise and fellowship with the living God. Talk about getting overconfident. During a season of waiting upon the Lord to fulfill these magnificent promises that he had given him, Abraham grew impatient and he took matters into his own hands and he, he succumbed to his wife's sinful scheme to have a child by Hagar. And you know the consequences of all of that. We're still experiencing that to this very day. During a season of prolonged stress, Moses succumbed to anger and failed to, dis- to obey God and treat him as holy. So he disobeyed God's clear command to smite the rock at Meribah and thus forfeited his entrance into the promised land. David succumbed to his lust and sinned with Bathsheba during a season of complacency and spiritual overconfidence. And in a season of great spiritual victory, Elijah melted in fear and became suicidal at the threats of Jezebel. During a season of discipleship and service with the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter became overconfident and boasted about his unwavering allegiance to Christ. And then he denied him three times. Oh, dear Christian, as believers, we must know ourselves well enough to anticipate the unique temptations that can surface even unexpectedly in these various seasons in our life where we might be vulnerable, especially in light of besetting sins or blind spots that we might have. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the word. And our prayers should carry the force of of Haggai's warning to ancient apostate Israel when he counseled them and said, consider your ways, consider your ways. Folks, because we are hopelessly biased in our own favor, we've got to be brutally honest with who we really are, with our weaknesses, and ask the Spirit of God to help us to watch and to pray for the right things. Pray, oh God, help me guard against abusing Christian liberty. So easy for me to do. I think I'm stronger than I really am. Help me to see my own weaknesses. Help me to learn how to exercise self-denial and self-discipline in all things. Help me to see where I am prone to idolatry, where, where I'm drawn to immorality, where I try and test you, where I grumble against you. Oh, God, help me to see this. 
And folks, when we do, we will be able to sing with the hymnist a song I used to sing when I was a little boy in our church. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word that speaks so directly to each of our lives. May we humble ourselves before it and take seriously the warnings that you have given us, knowing that you have done so for our good as well as for your glory. And if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it is to be in fellowship with the living God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, oh God, will you please break their heart? Help them to see the reality of their sin, the horror of it. Help them to see how the sword of divine justice is looming over their head, but there is forgiveness There is deliverance in Christ. And may today be the day that they run to the foot of the cross and cry out for the mercy that you will so readily give to all who humble themselves in repentant faith. Thank you, Lord, for ministering to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org.org